Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Please come in and take a seat. Unless you're buying Jay's book, of course, then you keep buying Jay's book. Um, welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Uh, so happy uh, to kick off our fall season of our Schieffer series. I want to welcome one of my bosses, Mike Galvin, who's here. Thanks for being here, boss. Um, we'd like to thank the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation uh, for making this event possible for us. And of course, we'd like to thank the Texas Christian University, TCU, Bob Schieffer College of Communication um, for being our partner in the Schieffer series, which, you know, we, this is our favorite thing to do at CSIS. And by the way, we have, I don't know if you all know this, but uh, Bob and I have a new podcast. It's called Bob Schieffer's About the News. It's on CSIS website, and it's also on iTunes. It's another partnership with the Schieffer College. Um, before we get to Bob, I also want to welcome TCU's former Vice Chancellor, Vice Chancellor Emeritus Larry Lauer and Sterling Lauer who are here. Thank you all for being here. Um, and with that, I'd like to introduce Bob Schieffer. Thank you very much, Andrew. Well, thanks for everybody uh, for coming. Uh, we had a little uh, summer respite uh, while uh, there was another story kind of going on <laughs> out there called the election. Uh, but a lot of it has been about Iran. And kind of, I guess what I would title this today is uh, the Iran agreement uh, a year and a couple of months later. Uh, how's it going? And we have three people who really do uh, know a lot about this. Uh, all three of you were in Vienna, were you not, uh, when this was all being negotiated and finally cleared up. Jay Solomon writes about foreign affairs, national security from the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau. Uh, his coverage areas include uh, international diplomacy, nuclear weapons, proliferation, counterterrorism, Middle East and Asian affairs. He is the author of the recently released book, The Iran Wars, Spy Games, Bank Battles, and the secret deals that reshaped the Middle East. He was the one, of course, who uh, I believe broke the story of that uh, $400 million in cash payment uh, that the Iranians uh, got uh, when, the, uh, when the hostages were released. Margaret Brennan, uh, since joining CBS News in uh, 2012, her foreign policy reporting has taken her around the world. She, she has been our State Department correspondent and has done just an absolutely spectacular job, if I do say so. And while Major Garrett, our White House correspondent, has been out uh, covering uh, uh, the campaign, Margaret has uh, served as both the uh, uh, State Department and White House correspondent and spends most of her time over at the White House these days. Uh, she was one of the uh, a uh, few U.S. correspondents reporting from Tehran during the uh, 2012 Non-Aligned Movement, which marked the largest international gathering in Iran since the founding of the Islamic Republic. Before CBS News, she was at uh, Bloomberg News, uh, where she covered uh, international economic uh, news. And uh, she was also over at CNB uh, CNBC for a while. Uh, she's just an all-around I would say the best hire CBS News has made in about the last five or six years. So, <laughs> David Sanger, you all know, my old buddy, national security correspondent with the New York Times. Uh, he has reported from New York, Tokyo, Washington, covered a wide variety of issues uh, surrounding foreign policy, globalization, nuclear proliferation. 
Uh, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for international reporting for coverage of the tsunami and the nuclear disaster uh, in Japan. Uh, he specialized in the confluence of economic and foreign policy as a correspondent and then bureau chief in Tokyo for six years. He covered Japan's rise in the world's, as the world's second largest economic uh, power. Uh, he is probably, I would say, one of, if not the top one, certainly one of the top correspondents covering cyber these days. So, David, we may want to ask you a little bit about this latest uh, disclosure. Uh, but what we want to talk about uh, today is the uh, Iran uh, agreement. And uh, I'd just like to start with this. All of you were there when it was signed. Uh, people had different ideas about what he th they thought it meant. He's, it's become a major campaign issue. But I would just start with a general question, how's it going? Uh, what's happened since it was signed? I think, David, you wrote a piece not so long ago and said the worst fears were not realized, uh, but there was more to the story than that. Margaret, I'll just start with you. Well, I think if you were to ask uh, the Obama administration, they'd say the agreement was going very well. They'd say they've gone down the checklist in terms of freezing the nuclear program. The Iranians did everything they were initially asked to do in the first few steps to get the sanctions relief that they've been granted. If you ask the Iranians, they have uh, a far less optimistic uh, line. Hassan Rouhani, the president, was just in New York a few weeks ago for the UN General Assembly and was making quite clear, as we'd heard from other lower-level Iranian officials, that they're frustrated that they're not getting more relief. Um, they think that they that the U.S. and the rest of the world, but primarily the U.S., is keeping them from getting their payoff, their their end of the bargain. They believe they've held up what their end was, and that the kind of sanctions that are still there um, are preventing them from really seeing a, a true economic benefit. And that's a problem clearly back at home for them, for good reason, because a big part of coming to the table in the first place was the promise that um, there would be some economic brightening back in Tehran, and that hasn't come, in, come fast enough. You have seen some business deals that have gone through recently uh, to get airplanes basically to help refresh uh, a long outdated supply of airlines that they've had in Iran. But when it comes to uh, the global financial markets, the United States still really has influence far beyond what Congress can control. And there's a lot of concern that the Treasury Department is still sort of dissuading people from doing business. That's what the Iranians believe. And they're very, very frustrated with that. And so that is what you will hear, I would bet, as well next week when you have a number of Iranian ministers coming to town, including the finance minister for these World Bank IMF meetings. There's going to be a lot of grumbling about the finances. David? Well, I agree completely with uh, Margaret's uh, characterization of where we are. Within the four corners of the deal, I think the Iranians have done everything they've been asked to do. And the Americans have done the letter of the law, but what I think the Iranians hoped for was a greater spirit of cooperation, particularly among European banks and all that. We had the remarkable scene earlier this year of Secretary Kerry going out to meet quietly with European bankers to say, no, really, go ahead and um, allow this money to go, to go flow. Um, the Republican Party has been strongly against uh, any sanctions relief and in fact has been trying to push some legislation that if anything would restore some of the sanctions under a different 
name for acts of terrorism and so forth. Uh, the exception to that has been uh, Donald Trump, who said in an interview that uh, a colleague of mine, Maggie Haberman, and I did with him uh, back in March, that he actually wanted to see American companies go back uh, to uh, doing business with Iran. He said, how stupid is it that we have a deal in which the American companies can't benefit? And I said, well, you realize that's because Congress you know, won't allow them to go do it, and it's largely his party that wouldn't allow them to do it. So it's one of those areas where there's a significant split between what the presidential candidate is viewing and what the rest but of the party. But he's totally against the deal. He's totally against the deal, but having, if you've got to live with the deal, he says, why shouldn't American companies benefit? And the answer is, our sanctions are still on. Okay. Um, there was a bigger gamble to this deal, and I think that, um, that Jay gets at this wonderfully uh, in his book, and uh, so if you haven't picked it up yet, do, do so as soon as you leave. Uh, but uh, the bigger gamble was that once we got the nuclear deal out of the way, there would be all kinds of other ways where the United States and Iran could find some common interests. So when we were all in, you know, stuck in this endless negotiation in Vienna, and I learned, by the way, you don't get any sympathy from your coworkers no, when you start no. an email with, I'm stuck in Vienna. <laughs> On an expense account. On oh, an yeah. expense yeah. account. And, and I would deny it if you would ever suggest that the three, the three correspondents you have up on the stage here were out dining at any point while we were waiting for all of this to happen. Yeah. I, I think there's a that. restaurant we missed, but I can't quite think of what it was. So anyway, um, uh, the bigger gamble was that we would have this bigger relationship. And in fact, what's happened is that outside the agreement, if anything, I would say events have deteriorated. We've had harassment of US ships uh, in the Gulf. You've had continued efforts by the Iranians to uh, support Assad, uh, put uh, Shiite militias and some of their own troops on the ground in Syria support for Hezbollah, I mean, the list goes on and on. Now, partly this may be that the unspoken deal for this in Iran was the Supreme Leader saying to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, okay, we took away your favorite weapons for the next 10 years, but you'll get them back eventually. And in the meantime, if you gotta go out and do other stuff that's outside the agreement, be my guest. We don't know. Um, but if the Obama administration wants to make the case that the deal was the seed for a better relationship, I'm afraid they're gonna leave office unable to prove that. Now what they'll tell you now is, look, this was a long range gamble. It's only Americans who can only see from you know, last summer to election day. We're not gonna know the answer to this until the Supreme Leader passes on and there's a new Supreme Leader. Uh, and until we've had, you know, 10 or 15 years to make this deal play out. And, you know, by that time, a lot could change in the world. But for now, based just today, you would say the deal was completely successful at removing an imminent threat that could have led to war. It was not successful in remaking the Iranian-American relationship at this point in time. Jay. Yeah, I, I'd agree with basically what, what was said before. Previously, I, I think if you look at the IAEA just came out with a report a couple of weeks ago and it basically said, yes, the, the, the um, 
Iranians were abiding by the program, the agreement. They were, they've moved out the, the enriched uranium. They have basically capped what they said they would. But even in the agreement, you can see they're, they're sort of, they're continuing to experiment with making faster centrifuge machines. They're continuing this ballistic missile development. So it is true that they've stuck to the, the letter of the law and, and that's a good thing. But I do think even now you can already see them sort of looking 10 years, 15 years down the line when this agreement lapses that they're, they're continuing to sort of master the technologies that can eventually give them atomic weapons if they want them. And that still raises the question, did we, we delayed it, but are, are we headed for a crisis in, in another five or, or, or 10 years? And the leverage that, we, that the US really had over the course of the negotiations, which were these incredible financial sanctions, coupled with the collapsing of oil prices, most people I've talked to in the business community, the Treasury Department say it is gonna be very difficult to generate that type of leverage in the future or ever again. So you have a situation where, yes, they have capped the program in the short term, but they're still kind of have the technologies that they can reverse course in the future. And I would argue the leverage that was developed amongst the US and its allies are, are not going to, uh, it's gonna be very hard to bring back again. I think the politics are, are really interesting in, in Iran. I, you do hear a lot of complaints from President Rouhani, from the finance officials that we're not getting what we want. And the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini has also said certain similar things. But I, I would argue that the Supreme Leader for now has kind of gotten what he wants. He was facing a financial crisis that his own people were telling him could morph into a national security threat. So he needed to get those sanctions lifted. He needed to get money back in the system. But at the same time, if you read his speeches, he's, always, he's almost as concerned about a flood of foreign money, a flood of Western ideas into his system as much as he was concerned about economic collapse. So I, I think he's kind of modulated the situation not too badly in his interest. The economy was contracting a few years ago. It's supposed to grow according to the World Bank next year by 5%. That's a pretty big shift. There are these business deals coming in for airplanes. That's pretty pretty good situation for them. And if you've seen what's happened on the ground, they have targeted Iranian Americans, European Iranians who are could be sort of a bridge towards more investment, more engagement with the West. And I don't think that was by mistake. I think these guys were targeting these type of people to send a, to send a kind of a shot across the bow towards the expatriate Iranian community. You know, don't think you're going to come in here and use this deal to cause great, great change. We're going to keep you guys at bay. And one of the first big investments that was announced uh, last couple of days involves um, companies around the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard, around Khomeini's um, foundations that kind of bring money into his system. So I think the, some of the complaints by the Iranians on the president's side are, I think are a little rich when you look at what's going on in Iran. Like the guy who controls the place does not want this flood of money. And I think he's, he's making sure that, it's, that it doesn't happen even when his, the political side will carp about it. Let me, uh, Jay, uh, you had that you know, barn burner of a story when you, you reported about this, what, $400 million in cash. 1.7 billion. Eventually, yeah, eventually. The first, yeah. first 
installment was was four yep four hundred million. Uh, How many boxes does it take to move four hundred million dollars? <laughs> trying to find out the denominations. Apparently, that's that's yeah. the big factor. I, I'm not asking you to reveal sources or anything like that, but it's it, it's it's such a great story. I'm always interested. How did you come upon that story? Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is Washington, so people eventually leak. It, it was it was a weird triangulation where I had kind of heard things and if you actually go back and look at some of the reporting from the Iranian press since the prisoner exchange there was in uh, a, a media outlet tied to the Revolutionary Guard that describes you know we wouldn't let these Americans leave until we got cash and there, there's a video which Donald Trump kind of referred to at one point where you do see a huge pallet of cash and whether that was the actual pallet of cash, I'm not totally sure, but they, they described in, in this media, um, this video about kind of a sequencing of the prisoners relief being released and the money coming in and some of these, and they, they were describing it basically as a ransom payment. Whether, I mean, I don't, the Americans say that's not the case, but that's how they were describing it. So between hearing stuff in Washington and what the Iranians were saying, it started to, become clear that you know there's some truth to this and if anyone's been covering the financial side of of Iran and the sanction it is hard to do transactions with Iran so the idea that you know you couldn't write a check or wire the money resonated with me and and, and kind of went went from there did I know all 1.7 billion was sent in cash and you know picked up in Geneva and Netherlands no but that was that just kind of played out but it was it was fascinating Oh, uh, you recently reported, I think, that also there were two sanctions on a couple of banks that were lifted, uh, and those sanctions were lifted, what, eight years before they were supposed to be. Uh, talk about that a little bit, too, because I think that's kind of important. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, pro the, the, the problem the White House has, their narrative was that, okay, we've, we had the nuclear agreement, which went into effect, was implemented on January 16th, we had a prisoner exchange the next day, and we had the payment of this money that was related to a bad arms deal from the Shah the next day, and then we lifted sanctions on these banks, but it was all kind of a coincidence, even though it was kind of, we wanted to clean up everything at once, but we've subsequently reported that the State Department's kind of, the main State Department official who was kind of overseeing the prisoner exchange was in Geneva meeting with members of Iran's Ministry of Intelligence and they actually signed documents related to the cash shipment, the release, the prisoner exchange and the release and the delisting of these banks by the United Nations. And the, the problem the, the White House has in this case is they've said, okay, we are going to relieve the pressure on the, the nuclear program, but we're going to continue to target their missile program because they're still launching missiles, they're still in violation of UN resolutions. These banks were solely sanctioned initially for financing Iran's missile program to the point that Treasury initially called them the, the linchpin of their, of, their web, of their missile program. So to delist them sends it risks kind of collapsing this architecture they created to, to stop their missile program. And like I was saying, the fact that all of this was kind of signed between an Iranian official and an American official 
really kind of undercuts what has been the White House narrative that this was all kind of per chance. We didn't cut some agreement that was tied to the release of the Americans, but literally these documents were signed. The Americans were, were, were basically, it wheels up from Tehran, the money starts being released, and these sanctions are lifted. So it was very sequenced and orchestrated. You know, Margaret, as, as often happens in American politics, all of this unfolding in the middle of a presidential campaign, it almost gets reduced down to cartoon stereotypes. Right. I mean, uh, the people on this side say this is, there's nothing good about this, and the people on that side say there's nothing bad about it. Uh, do you think we're getting uh, the real picture of what this agreement is about? I mean, how do you see the way it's being played out in the campaign? Well, I think, I mean, that's almost two questions. I, th I think it's going to take a while. It, quietly, you hear more and more from diplomats, Western diplomats, that while they think the deal's sticking now, they aren't quite as certain that it'll last for the full duration, that the 10 to 15 years, you hear more and more skepticism. So that will translate into the next president's job and what they will have to reconsider when it comes to uh, the, the deal, the confrontation with Iran, and whatever you do going forward with sanctions and the like. I mean, on the campaign trail, this is something that it's, it's red meat to anyone who wants to be angry at the, you know, the current administration and the status quo because it sounds like there was billions of dollars handed over for a bum deal, as Donald Trump would tell the story. Um, on Hillary Clinton's part, she would tell the story that this was groundwork patiently and deliberately laid for years and years that now um, when she gets to office, she will make sure is impl implemented quite strongly and some would argue that she perhaps would be um, less delicate in terms of uh, being afraid to come out with further sanctions on things outside the rubric of the deal itself. That is, you know, more punishment on human rights or more punishment on some of the bad actor type behavior that people are still having problems with with Iran. Um, Donald Trump's threat to blow Iranian ships out of the water um, if they continue to harass our boats, yes, that, that's red meat on the campaign trail. In office, can you actually follow through with kind of threats like those? That sets a tone whether or not you intend to, to follow through with it. So I think the Iran question is actually going to be really interesting on day one for whoever ends up winning. Um, but I also think this is something that we're going to consider in the Iranian elections the question of how they pick up their end of it too. This isn't just an American deal, this is a global agreement. You can't just rip it up. Uh, you certainly can, can poison the spirit of it on the American side or on the Iranian side. So it, it'll be interesting to see on day one. I don't know how either, either candidate would exactly approach it. Did Hillary Clinton, how much did she have to do with this? David? Well, she had a lot to do with its origins. Uh, during the last year that she was Secretary of State, she was the one who sent uh, Bill Burns, who was the Deputy Secretary, and Jake Sullivan, who was um, her uh, policy planning uh, chief and is now the head of all policy in the campaign, out to do this series of secret meetings that, uh, with the Iranians. And that particularly took off once it became uh, clear that this reformist group um, uh, led by President Rouhani and with, um, uh, with a foreign minister uh, in place, or at that time a suspected uh, foreign minister in Javad Zarif, 
and so they met with them and they realized that this was the great, you know, this was going to be the moment. Um, they accomplished more than I thought they were going to accomplish at the time. And, you know, since we all had a little time on our hands in all of these negotiations over a year and a half, there was constant speculation about whether this would come together or basically be killed off by the Supreme Leader before the deal was signed. And Zarif kept saying to all of us, no, I have the authority to go negotiate this. And there were many ups and downs, but ultimately, uh, of course, in that he was right. The question, I think, is first, as Margaret points out, does this survive the Iranian political process? Because there are many in Iran who basically want to hang this thing on Rouhani and Zarif before the elections, which are, I guess are in March, right? Um, so that's test number one. So you could have a situation, depending on how elections in both countries worked out, where you could have an opponent of the deal who says it was a terrible deal, get elected president, and you could see the ouster of the architects of the deal in Iran. Um, if Secretary Clinton uh, gets elected, she's already said in a speech that she gave uh, here in Washington about a month after the deal was signed, that she would enforce other provisions, including the missile side of this, which is not formally in the deal, um, very strictly. And so an interesting question will be, does she do this more strictly than President Obama has? Um, she can get away with saying that she didn't sign off on the final details of the deal, uh, but she will inherit that in its current form. So what, so what happens then, Jay? We've paid them $1.3 billion. Uh, what if they just walk away? Do you see that as a possibility? They would just walk away from it? I mean, my, my assessment is, for now, the first couple of years, I think it's in both the Iranian and the American interest to keep this deal afloat. I think, as David was, was saying, Donald Trump is like, at first he says, oh, this is a terrible deal, I'll tear, tear it up. But then he's also talked so much about not wanting to kind of get bogged down in some external crisis. Yeah, there's business opportunity. It's hard to see him courting, in his first months of office, a, a direct con conflict with Iran. And Hillary Clinton, too, has, has talked about um, enforcing this, but I, I don't see her wanting to court a crisis with Iran when you've got the North Koreans you know, testing nukes and, and missiles all the time, and you've got the Syria crisis burning up. I think that the longer term question is, though, does this deal kind of start to erode after a few years when the, the principals who negotiated it are, are out of the question? John Kerry is you know, tirelessly been in going around the world trying to get, get investment, trying to, to make the deal work. And he's, he's going to be gone. His successors will not have the same kind of personal investment in this. And it's unclear if Rouhani and, um, and, and Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, are, are around. I, I think one analogy I use, which might not be perfect, <coughs> and David covered this a lot, was the, the agreement with the North Koreans in 94 was very much a kind of a swap for economic engagement, support for a capping of their program. And it, it did survive about eight years. But if you look back and read what was being said at the time, Congress in the US was never really behind this deal. They were never going to finance the building of reactors in North Korea. And, they were, and the North Koreans were probably cheating 
pretty quickly, even though people didn't know about it. it. It took the Bush administration, but once they started to sort of say, look, you're cheating, you're not living up to the deal, to start it, push it, the deal didn't last very long under the Bush administration. I don't think that's, I think that's a risk when you have in both the Iranian and the North Korean situation, very transactional relationships that are basically, you know, you're renting or you're basically buying off their their program for a while without any real political or diplomatic glue or, or change in relationship. And if that doesn't happen in Iran in the next few years, I think you run that risk where at some point either the US or Iran says, look, we're not getting what we wanted or we're not getting enough money. And, and the, without that glue, it, it could run the risk of ungluing itself at some point. The other thing I would say is outside the sort of paperwork deal, you, you have to look at the knock-on effects of what this has done in the region and how that continues to influence the U.S. relationship with Iran, right? I mean, the deal itself was, had reverberations worldwide, and the Obama administration really embraced this idea of disruptive diplomacy. They were fine with, hey, we're throwing out the old playbook, and maybe it makes others uncomfortable in Israel. Maybe it makes them uncomfortable in Saudi Arabia, but ultimately, we're going to go through with what we see as American interests before what some would argue American values in, in talking to a regime as rogue as Iran. But what that has also done, if you look at Syria, if you look at Yemen, some would say is, is intensify um, some of the, I wouldn't say cold wars, but some of the tensions certainly between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, the more insecure people have felt, I would argue, in, in Riyadh and elsewhere, the more about their position and about Iranian influence perhaps increasing in the, in the region that has lent itself to an intensification of that war in Yemen, which is not going very well for Saudi Arabia um, and is certainly not going very well for the people of Yemen right now. Um, Syria and what is going on there, I mean, if you just look at the ground forces and the presence that Iran continues to have, in Syria, this deal has not in any way discouraged them from expanding and in many ways solidifying their influence in the region. So it's changed the dynamic far beyond just the question, the nuclear question. Yeah, and, and I'd, I'd kind of like to, to, sh to shift into that because I, I think one of the things that you wrote, uh, I looked at one of the pieces you wrote right after this was signed, and you said the next test will be uh, what does Iran do in regard to Syria and all that? And from what I hear you saying right now, the answer to that is not much. No, and, and you hear quietly U.S. officials when they were arguing for the cessation of hostilities, which obviously didn't work, um, despite intense diplomacy to try to get the Russians to rein in uh, Assad. The bet is really, well, the Iranians have more influence. You know, Moscow uh, doesn't have the influence that Tehran does in Syria. And there was sort of a quiet argument between some, of the US, some U.S. officials who really believed that Tehran was tiring of what it was doing in Syria, that it was losing some of its, quote, you know, their version of special forces, that they were losing really strategic um, officers and important people on the battlefield quietly. They have, but whether that has bled them, other Western diplomats would say, no, this is a core interest for them. They're not going to pull back just because America or just because Vladimir Putin tells them to. Also, they got lucky in that the Russians came in to act as their air force while right. they were on the ground. Very true. Um, 
you know, what the if there was somebody from the administration sitting up here, they would say everything that you guys have described is absolutely true, but could also be true if you hadn't gotten a deal, and then you'd have an Iran on the cusp of a nuclear weapon while it's doing all this. And so one of the arguments you could make is when all your choices are bad, you'd rather be trying to compete with and influence an Iran that is more than a year and probably several years away now from a nuclear weapon than one that's right on the edge of one. And you know, the evidence for that, again, as Jay suggested, is North Korea. We did have a series of agreements with them. Um, we uh, lost our focus on it, and it's worked out great you know, ever since. So um, uh, the, the big question, I think, when we look back on this deal going to be threefold. Did you get the delay you wanted? And if it's 10 to 15 years, they will have gotten something, probably not as long as they want. Did it build a new relationship between the US and Iran, or the formation for that? Too early to tell. And I think the third question, and this one has got sort of ominous elements to it right now, is in the course of focusing so much diplomatic attention on Iran, did we take our eye off of the country that was actually screwing together nuclear weapons and figuring out how to put them on top of missiles? And so we are in the situation now that the next president will come in with a significantly better Iran situation and a dramatically worse North Korea situation. Do you and agree with that, Jay? I do think they did take, yeah, they, it was weird. They were so invested in reaching out to the supreme leader of Iran to do you know, diplomacy with Iran. It was always kind of strange to me why Obama didn't just say, all right, I'm going to call Kim Jong-un. Unlike Iran, where you have all these competing political forces, you, th you think if you called this one kid and tested him, it, it might have been an easier agreement. But I, I, do, I do think it is a huge I mean, I've heard from Clinton people that this, they think this could be the first crisis of her presidency if she wins, because this guy's completely out of, out of control, and they have... Might not even wait for her presidency. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think, that, I think that is like well, a, a real threat. And, but I do think it, if you look at the North Korea deal going back, it, it was similar in a lot of ways with what Iran does, and raises the question, can you really cut deals with these... Um, type of governments. And the one thing I'd ra raised just about Syria, I'm almost more cynical because I remember when Margaret and I were walking around the Alps where we were drinking <laughs> wine, you know, the North, the, the Iranians and no the Syrians. No one's going to hear the rest of your sentence. <laughs> yeah. <right now. laughs> no, but that before the deal that year, the Iranians were sending top officials to Moscow to sort of plot out this defense of the Assad regime kind of in the months leading up to the agreement. So it was behind the back of the Americans that they were plotting out this really sophisticated operation where the Russians are doing the air power. The Iranians are sending their own troops and mobilizing Shiite militias from Iraq, Lebanon, Afghanistan. And this became clear you know, just weeks after the agreement in Vienna, but it was thought out in advance. So if you're looking for sort of good intentions from the Kremlin or from Iran, that, that move on Syria was completely counter to what the Americans had been hoping for and was pretty cynical that it was being negotiated behind the back of John Kerry. Uh, this morning on, on all the morning shows, Mike Pence was talking about setting up not only a, a no-fly zone 
in Syria, but also of what he called a safe zone. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was pressed on most of the shows pretty hard, well, well how do you do that? And uh, he never said we have to send U.S. troops in there to do it. But that seems like a pretty difficult thing to pull off. Well, his, um, his staff has spent much of the rest of the day trying to explain to us you know, those phone calls that begin, what the candidate meant to say, you know, or <laughs> let me just sort of amplify the candidate's <laughs> points, right? Um, look, a safe zone as opposed to a no-fly zone is a big military operation. It means that you have defined a fairly large area, you have put people into it, and you have promised to defend it, which means usually you either have to have your troops or someone else's troops around the perimeter of that. You need them in sufficient numbers to deter somebody, in this case the Russians, the, Ira the Syrians, the Iranians, others from coming into that, that zone, particularly the Syrian government. And you have to have decided on a whole bunch of different rules, including if someone comes in over it with an airplane or on the ground, do you take them out? And that's a big, big commitment. And you, know, you can agree or disagree with President Obama's decision not to go do this, but there's no question that once you decide to do it, you have committed yourself to a significant military operation. And I'm not sure the degree to which that was sort of made clear in those interviews. And Tim Kaine said during the CBS debate, CBSN debate, that uh, Hillary Clinton also supported a version of a safe zone, but he specified the north of Syria. So actually both campaigns are now, they're on record as having, saying, having said they support some version of that. But when it gets to the specifics, they may go to the White House line, which is here's our letter from 2013 from Martin Dempsey saying why we can't do that. And that that policy is frozen in time in 2016, we're not willing to. There is a way, but there's not a will to carry that out. Well, and I'm not sure how it matches up with Mr. Trump's stated uh, statement many times in many different interviews, including the ones that we've done, that he wants to focus on ISIS, not on the Syrians, and not on the Syrian government. I mean, and the one other thing, kind of tying back to the Iran deal that I found in writing the book, which I think was kind of one of the more contentious issues, was the Obama red line of August 2013, he was going to hit Assad if he used his air force. It was, I mean, if he was using chemical weapons, which was at the exact moment when these secret negotiations between the Americans and the Iranians were kind of at their height. The, the White House constantly says there was no connection between Obama's U-turn. There was no, we, we never tied Iran, our Iran diplomacy to what we were going to do in Syria. But I've interviewed Iranians who said, look, if the U.S. has started hitting the Assad regime in the middle of these negotiations. There's no way the Supreme Leader of the Revolutionary Guard was going to continue to support the diplomacy because this is their strategic depth in the Middle East. It's their closest ally. And since 2013, we have seen a letter that um, President Obama wrote the Supreme Leader where he said, if we can get a nuclear agreement, maybe we can cooperate on ISIS. But more than that, you should know we are not going to be targeting the Assad regime. So. I still think it would be very hard um, for the U.S. to be put, at least under the Obama administration, but we'll see how the next one goes, to be put in a situation, not only if you enforce such a safe zone, you could be running into the Iranian, I mean the, the Russian Air Force, you could also be running into the Iranians, Hezbollah and their militias, and the U.S. does not have a good track record. If you look at the Marine barracks in Beirut in 83, I mean that's who we were coming up against, it was Iran and Hezbollah, so it's uh, 
it, there's a lot of players in that country now, and it's very difficult to get involved. I want to go just quickly back to something both of you talked about uh, in North Korea. Uh, you talked about this could be, people are saying this could be the first test if, if Hillary Clinton is elected. Uh, what, do, what do you mean? I mean, do, do they seriously think uh, this guy might uh, fire off some of these missiles? Or? I mean, the problem is, I mean, it's interesting because Bill Clinton was dealing with the North Koreans as well, but if you look at how much more advanced and sophisticated the, the North Korean arsenal now is when Bill was president, they were just worried about diverted plutonium. Now they know they have at least 20, the Chinese think they might have as many as 40 nuclear weapons, and they're, you know, they were making advances toward a hydrogen bomb and long-range missiles. So you're getting to the point in some ways of no return where the North Koreans could basically hold hostage Asia and the United States in a way you couldn't before. They're sort of crossing a Rubicon where if you let them continue to advance, it's not like 10 years ago where you were just worried about them having bombs. You're now worried about them delivering them. And I don't think it's something like David was saying, it, Iran was a threat, but these guys are on the cusp and how can you really sit back when they're that advanced and they have had proven record of willing to proliferate. I mean, the, the, North, the Syrian reactor was basically a model of North Korea's reactor built by North Koreans who were killed by, by an Israeli airstrike. So it's both the proliferation and just the sense that this, that Kim Jong-un is out of control, is, it's something I don't think she can sit on for four years. Is, is there any possibility that China, everybody seems to suggest they have the most influence, in the, but that they would go beyond where they are now, David? Well, you know, this is a great thing. You listen to these presidential debates and everybody says, well, I would go focus on the Chinese. And you sort of think to yourself, now there's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't anybody else think about getting the Chinese to go influence the North Koreans? Um, I think there are sort of two or three realities we've sort of come to. One, if China wanted to solve this problem, they would have solved it some time ago. Second, we were living 10 years ago, 15 years ago, in that period of time that Jay was talking about, with the theory that the North Koreans were willing to go trade their nuclear program for some benefits of dealing with the West. I don't know many people who still hold that belief, who are like paying attention. I think at some point the North Koreans have made the turn and they've come to the conclusion that this is about regime survival, that we have a pretty good record of what happens to countries that give up their nuclear weapons program, and uh, then the Americans and others come after them. Anybody checked in with Mr. Gaddafi on that issue in recent times? That made a big impression on uh, the North Koreans. Um, thirdly, the more that they look at the Iranians complaining that they're not really getting many of the economic benefits, the more they think, why would we? Um, so what triggers the crisis? There are only two real technological hurdles that the North Koreans have left. One is that they have not demonstrated that they can launch a missile that lands you know, just off of Long Beach yet. I don't know if that's two years away, five years away, seven years away. When that moment comes and that missile lands in the water, you've suddenly got a crisis of new dimensions in Washington. The second is we don't know if they can shrink a nuclear warhead enough and stabilize it enough that when you put it on that missile, you can leave the atmosphere, come back in, and it comes in whole and complete. 
But the best estimates are they figured out how to do that for short-range missiles. So, you know, it took us a number of years, the United States, to do that in the 50s. It's not easy, it's not an easy piece of engineering, but eventually we got there. And those are really the only hurdles left. All right, well, let's go to questions. Who has a question? Right here. Step right up. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Paolo von Schirach, uh, president of the Global Policy Institute. I'm, I'm asking all of you who've been you know, present at the creation of this, of this deal, uh, what is the end game, really? Because we know it's, there's this sort of sunset clause, right? Are we ready for it? I mean, are, is anybody thinking ahead and saying, okay, now they're abiding by the terms of the treaty, everything is fine, etc. Well, except that they are not in, in good faith, as you uh, elaborated, in particular, the ballistic, the, I'm talking about the Iranians, of course, now, not the North Koreans, but the, um, the ballistic missile uh, development, which is going on full speed, which is technically illegal, but there, but there's no way that we are interested, it seems to me, to ratchet up san sanctions in a meaningful way. And if we did, the Iranians may say, hey, this, uh, this jeopardizes the other deal, and so we're off from, from everything. In other words, we see this ambiguous uh, um, implementation, so to speak. But let's let assume that they, that they fully and faithfully implement and do whatever they're supposed to do, even though they continue to develop uh, ballistic missiles. Then 10 years go by and they say, okay, thank you, we're, we're, now we're done, and we go back to proliferation and enriching uranium, etc., etc., thank you very much. Is there anybody uh, saying, oh, what are we going to do then, at that point? What's well, I think there's a reason that the U.S. just gave Israel a $38 billion weapons deal, uh, military aid package, the largest that has ever been given to any country um, by the United States, and some very significant weaponry within that. So I think, yes, there are people talking and planning for that, um, but in, in terms of what has been said publicly, I know President Obama, when did he say that? He said something to the effect of basically like, I'll ultimately be judged on how this turns out, and that he was cognizant of it. Um, but as for the, what the Pentagon has drawn up in their 10-year, 15-year plan, I, I don't have anything beyond the arms deal. I mean, that's why I think in a lot of ways this was a huge political bet. They, were, they wouldn't often state it, but they were basically arguing, okay, the Supreme Leader's 77, he's had cancer, he's not going to be around much longer. The generation that was behind the Islamic Revolution is, is aging. You've got this youthful population that doesn't even remember the revolution. These guys are going to pass from the scene, and in 10 or 15 years when the restraints are lifted, we're not going to be as concerned about what they have because you'll have a more moderate government. That is a very dicey proposition, but I, I still think one of the biggest risks is the fact that they, the U.S. and its allies did create this incredible sanctions regime that had way more impact than even they thought they'd have. And it's being, even if it's not to what the Iranians want, it's, it's, it's being unwound. And I don't think anyone believes, short of the Iranians testing a bomb, you could bring that back again. It was just, it was, it took a decade to put in, in place. It involved so much strong arming, you know, a perfect confluence of oil prices collapsing. I, I just think if there's not political change in 10, 15 years, you're going to run the risk of having a crisis, but the West having less tools to confront it short of war. There, there is one tool I think that we have. I mean, the administration will tell you it was sanctions that brought them to 
to the table and I think probably the three of us would tell you it was a mix of sanctions and sabotage that brought them to the table. Uh, and I wrote a lot about the sabotage in a, a book four years ago and uh, that was part of a long history. And I think one of the, the, the quiet bets of this is that the way the United States will have insights into the program from the heightened inspection and the ability to improve on the sabotage methods, particularly the cyber methods that were used, would make it possible to slow down a program even if you couldn't restore the sanctions regime. But that's a bet that your covert capability can be reconstituted. Let me uh, ask a question here because I was going to ask David about this and, and I said I would at the beginning. Uh, Bring us up to date on this latest thing out at uh, the arrest of the contractor uh, stealing secrets, apparently. Right. right. So the contractor, the contractor worked for Booz Allen. His name is Hal Martin. Uh, that's for anybody who's uh, here who doesn't know Booz Allen, and probably many here do and have, have dealt with them. Uh, they also employed Edward Snowden. That's two in three years. It's probably not like the record you want to go up to Capitol Hill uh, uh, with. Um, but from what we can tell right now, he, is, Mr. Martin, is quite different from Snowden. So Snowden was a, had a political agenda, and you can debate forever and go to the movies and figure out whether you think uh, he is traitor or hero or somewhere in between. But Mr. Martin, from everything we can tell, was not, did not have a political agenda that we can find right now. And maybe that'll change over time. Uh, he was a collector. He collected a huge amount, a huge number of documents. Whether this was to finish his long-suffering PhD, at the, uh, which he was working on for the longest time, or whether he simply thought that if he had all this stuff around at home, he could think bigger thoughts about how it all connects, we don't know. But so far, as we were working on the story for the past uh, three or four days before we broke it uh, yesterday, we couldn't find anybody who suggested to us that he had actually transmitted this information to anyone else. Um, so, you know, he had the world's greatest private library of uh, secret <laughs> from the TAO, the Tailored Access Operations Unit of the NSA. That's the unit that breaks into, into systems. But what he was planning to do with it is still a mystery to us. Well, you know, I mean, and, and this is something I've, I know absolutely nothing about, but what I, as I say, what I read in the papers. But it, it seemed to be a plot right out of the Americans, that show about those uh, <laughs> Soviet spies that lived in the United States and posed as American. And they were bribing people who worked there. Uh, I mean, it, it just, it had that, it was just like somebody there had written this yeah. whole story, uh, but as, as you say, at, at this point, you can't find any motivation or that he he actually sold any of this. Thing. That's right. Now, it may turn out that he did, but he certainly didn't seem to be living the wild lifestyle that you see on the Americans. Yeah, <laughs> and he, but he did not appear to be an ideologue. This was not something. No, and in fact, much of what they found is suggested that he was, ex at least in his utterances, highly patriotic, and uh, so. Hard to figure this out. Okay, anybody else? Right here. Sure. Uh, Peter Humphrey, I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. 
during the course of the uh, JCPOA, if things are not looking good, if we get a lot of intelligence that they're going you know, mock wild uh, with centrifuge plans and bomb designs, what is plan B then, since uh, snapback sanctions is one of the great fantasies of the century? What's plan B during the course of the JCPOA? And um, what is the threshold for us actually breaking something? Or is like that completely off the table until 12 years from now? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take the first shot at it. I mean, I think one of the, the weaknesses of the JCPOA from kind of proliferation folks are, while they can't produce more enriched uranium, they can continue to sort of develop their centrifuges and more advanced machines. So when the limitations are lifted, they could kind of reconstitute that base of fissile material really quickly, like second, third, fourth generation centrifuges. They're, they're allowed to keep developing in some ways legally. And that, that's one of the real weaknesses in, in the program, in the agreement in a lot of ways. But, you know, I, I don't think there's been much, I mean, the outside of the snapback sanctions, the, the president will say, you know, we could go back to the military option if we needed to um, down the line if it, it happened. I think one of the things David raised, which is interesting, is just how much the cyber capability is still there. Because we know about the Stuxnet attack. I think David and others have reported about kind of an even more elaborate kind of um, systemic attack the administration told the Iranians potentially they could launch if there was a sign of them cheating or there was a no agreement that there could be a much broader uh, cyber attack. So I think those are some of the, the, the options that are out there. But I, I do think that the weakness of the agreement is there are a lot of things they can do legally under the, under the agreement on producing uh, enrichment. And I, I, one of the stories and elements of the agreement I'm still sort of amazed about was there was just years of focus on basically finding out what the Iranians did, as how far did they get with their weaponization program, how close were they to a bomb, and the administration finally came to a position, well, we kind of know what they were doing, but, you know, they gave them a bit of a pass. They never really had to put forward the scientists or the access to some of the bases that initially the IAEA was demanding, but one of the kind of quiet stories that kind of passed was the, U the IAEA, the inspectors did finally get into this one site and got some samples and they did find uranium there and U.S. officials I talked to said there's, there was really no explanation for having uranium on this military base except for that it was part of this secret weaponization program from a decade ago but because of the agreement it was just kind of glossed over it was in a little sentence in the bottom of an IAEA report and I'm just a bit skeptical that they really knew everything that was going on, even though I think they did have pretty good intelligence. So that kind of issue of like, how close were they? Why were they doing enrichment? At the, or why was there traces of enrichment, enriched uranium at this military base is gonna haunt this agreement going forward. And that was, in my estimation, one of the, the weaker elements that they, this whole issue, they've gotta at least come to some closure on the weaponization. I don't think they ever really did. All right, uh, we're going to have one more question, and is there a woman in the audience who'd like to ask a question? We had two guys. Okay, <laughs> right back there. I'll... Uh, either you all find it out. <laughs> Same. 
we hear that um, you know North Korea and Iran have been working together with the nuclear programs. We also hear that the testing seems uh, is going on in North Korea. They've been very successful, including 10 to 30, somewhere around 20 kiloton explosions and things like that, apparently optimized towards uh, gamma radiations and so on to do a super EMP. Uh, there's also uh, North Korean satellites in polar orbits going overhead uh, around us, obviously. So the natural question is, is it simply paranoia to think that they're really ready to, and they're working you know, su um, successfully so far towards the attainment of basically wiping us off the map? Who'd like to answer that? Well, I can take a, I'll take a first <laughs> shot. Uh, there's long been missile cooperation between North Korea and Iran, and the Iranians have bought a lot of their missile designs from the North Koreans. And they both were um, uh, paid up clients of AQ Khan in Pakistan, uh, who was um, uh, providing them uh, not only uh, with the nuclear designs and the um, enrichment capability, but in the case of North Korea, they were receiving some um, missile technology back. The Pakistanis were receiving it. I've never found any convincing evidence of nuclear cooperation. It's widely rumored, but sort of never proven. Um, those North Korean satellites, I don't lose a whole lot of sleep about those. The only <laughs> ones I've sort of seen play a radio jingle to Kim Il-sung, the, the country's founder. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think the North Koreans have, you know, a lot of nuclear ambitions but um, doing an EMP in space, I think that one's sort of, you know, at the far out end of the list. All right. I'm sorry. But the one thing I know how to do is get off on time. <laughs> I learned that at CBS. On behalf of TCU and CSIS, thank you all for coming. Appreciate it.